Hey, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. Episode 93, Rob Rhodes. Here we go. My guest today is Rob Rhodes. Rob is a singer, guitarist, entertainer, entertainment manager and band owner. Born and raised in Sydney, Rob relocated to the New South Wales far north coast in 2015. As well as all the music stuff Rob's done, he's also been a hotel pub manager, a restaurant manager and a venue manager. When COVID-19 hit, Rob used that time to create a couple of Facebook live shows to keep himself busy and to stay in touch with his friends and his fans. One of those being the musicians in. In this conversation today, Rob and I talk about his career to this point, the effects of COVID-19 on the music industry, a little bit on health and well-being, some insights into performance, entertainment management and hotel management, amongst a bunch of other things. A very giving, selfless, hardworking and insightful man, Rob Rhodes is the real deal. Hope you dig this conversation as much as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up. For Rob Rhodes. All right, I think we're rolling. Yo, Rob Rhodes, how are you, man? Good, Stevie. How are you? Not too bad. Welcome to Gig Life Podcast. Man, thanks for having me. Sweet as. Now, we've met, well, not, not in person, but a couple of months ago, you invited me to your Musicians In um, live stream musician show and we did a we did an episode on podcasting which was really cool um yeah it was a good night that i really enjoyed it it's a lot of fun yeah it's been a good little project and a good excuse to stay in touch with friends and make new ones and i'll have to get you back on mate for sure uh, that'd be cool i've got some i've got some topics that are in your wheelhouse great fantastic man i'll be there i loved it it was really good and it was um was one of my first uh live stream experiences um like being on the other being on the other side um i did try um to live stream like early on like just with my phone um like usually on a saturday morning i'll I'll come into my studio and, and i might start recording intros for the podcast that i've done and stuff and so i thought oh, i'll just set up the camera and and Record it, man. I was nervous as fuck. Eh? <laughs> I don't know how you. Do I think it. I get more. I get more nervous with the pre-recorded thing because it gives me too much uh, opportunity to think. Okay. And uh, when you do the live thing, it's just. I think it's like playing live to recording as well. Right. Yeah. There's just like it goes out there, and you don't have to worry about editing. Yeah. And yeah, making yeah. sure it looks perfect and sounds perfect. It's yeah, just. Gotcha. It's in the moment. And I just like that instant interaction with the audience, you know, as a musician. Yeah. Do you think um, you think it comes about from from that though, from being a being a live musician? It kind of gives you that same same sort of buzz in a sense. And you've got an audience too, haven't you? Like they're there. Yeah. And they're talking to you. And yeah. yeah. Absolutely. That that instant, you know, gratification that you get. I think where 
Um, I'm definitely tuned to that and have noticed have noticed just coming back playing to seated audiences from doing live streams is, you know, it's the live streams are great and I got used to it, but now you're back out there and listening to people clap and cheer and yeah. um, just having a good time. It's it's something that can't be taken for granted. Yeah. Did you ever have like one of those sample buttons with the clapping? So like when you're doing the live streams, you hit the sample button. Yeah. Mm. No, I never did that. But, you know, right. when I first started doing solo gigs, I never really took them serious and I had a sample button at okay. those gigs okay. and I just I just always hit the boo button. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. Um, now let, let's talk about um, COVID just for a little bit. I don't want to focus on it too much. Um, um, obviously, it's here and we're dealing with it, and um, I know it's affected you, um, you know, pretty full on in regards to gigs and stuff. And, again, what we're just talking about, the flip side is that you, you know, you started some live streaming and um, and that kept you busy during that time. So leading up to COVID, before COVID sort of hit, what was what was in the pipeline? What got blown out? Oh man, everything got blown out. We had uh, with living in the seventies, which is my seventies tribute show. Uh, we had we were just about to book the hundred and tenth show for twenty twenty, uh, and I had fifty or sixty other solo, duo, trio, wedding gigs as well. Oh, Jesus. Uh, I think I did I think I did the maths the other day and before last weekend I'd done eight of 80 gigs that were in the calendar over this time. Right. And that's happened in the last five or six weeks, those eight gigs. But I think it's 10 now after the weekend. So, right. yeah, it uh, took a massive toll and, yeah, we just couldn't do anything about it. So it was... Mm try and take stock of everything and plan for the future. I think I told you uh, in our preamble before the musicians in podcast that uh, I saw it coming pretty early mm. and I know Peter Northcote talked about this too, mm. prepared for it, prepared my guys uh, to stop spending, no big purchases. Yeah, right. Uh, this, was in, this was in late February, I think. And oh, sat wow. down you with saw, the wife. You, you saw it February. Yeah. Wow, good on you. Late Feb. Mm. Yeah. And uh, just sat down with the wife, looked at our savings, uh, looked at how long we could last on that savings, which at that time without any government assistance being announced was three months. Um, and thankfully that job seeker came in. I got that before the rush that everybody hit right. and the crash, the crash <laughs> of the website. So I was in before that. Oh, good. Uh, and then JobKeeper, uh, yeah. So we've, you know, honestly, we've done, we've been very lucky, uh, stayed busy and with a few of these projects and mentally that's helped me a lot. We've all had our struggles, but, um, yeah, it's um, I'm ready to come out of it though. Um, and as you would have heard, I'm just up on the border of New South Wales and Queensland. Yep. Uh, so they they chucked a big hurdle in our way to continue our comeback where we were. So I'm um, I'm just letting it letting it rest for a little while, and then I'll start emailing and calling local members and organise letters from venues and stat decks and whatever else, and uh, just to try and make these gigs we've got coming up happen in Queensland. Mm. So you had um. 
correct me if I'm wrong, but just this last weekend, you had a band gig booked, and you've got have you got you've got a couple of guys down here in New South Wales. Is that right? Well, that, that could, that they're all up. They're all up it, here, but right. yeah, I've got one keyboard players in Alstonville, which is just west of Ballina. Right. And then Darren, who I think you know, yeah. who plays drums with yeah. us, he's down a bit closer to Grafton in near Angowrie, right. which is two hours south of, or t- yeah, two, two and a half hours south of the border. So they're definitely in what Queensland have classed the hot zone. Right. Um, I'm in what they call the border bubble. So um, I can go as far north as the Gold Coast um, Shire. So I can go to Ormo, but I can't go to Brisbane or the Sunny Coast, which is Sunny Coast is the majority of my gigs uh, with the 70s show. Uh, and 80, 80 to 90% are all in Queensland. So to be over this side of the border, is uh, it's, it's very tricky. It, it looked all right until they closed it. Um, we'd been back gigging. Uh, yeah, the weekend just gone, we had our second gig back. And at the end of the month, we've got three, one in Surface Paradise, one in Caloundra, and then one in Cool and Gutter, which looks like unless I can, unless the border opens or a miracle happens and we can get exceptions, we're going to have to cancel those gigs too. Man. So how's that? How's that? Um, how's that mess with your psyche? Because I mean, it's like you know, you've been in the shit place, and you're starting to find your way out of it. And the gigs are coming back; it's all looking good again. And then that, yeah, it's um, it's frustrating because one of the band members isn't on any uh, government assistance, so coming back, you know, it's helped him and. Just the momentum, you know, we started to announce gigs. I put another ticketed show on sale and because of the uncertainty that just the ticket sales of that have dried up. Uh, So toying with do we cancel it, do we hold on because it's mid-September and things can change very quickly. Um, So you just, look, you're trying to do your best but you can only get kicked so many times when you're planning for the future. Like I invested big money in a new PA and lighting and um, I went the other way and just went, hey, they're going to move us in these times from the main bars and the public bars into their auditoriums and that's what it was looking like when we came back. A lot of venues said, yeah, we're going to have to move you to the auditorium. Is that all right? And I'm like, I'm prepared. You know, I've got a big PA now and I'm ready. And then for all those gigs within three days of being uh, confirmed, they were all got pretty much all the New South Wales ones were cancelled again within a week, you know. Has there been any talk of like you kind of kind of mentioned exemptions there, but like can you not like prove to them that you've been tested or, you know, isn't there something they can put together? Because you're talking about livelihoods here, not just yours. I'm talking about the hundreds, the hundreds, thousands of musicians that that need to play and need to gig. You must, you yeah. Know, must well, put something like there's that they've got what they call a border bubble, which is called an X pass. So I can, being here in Pottsville, I can cross the border. I don't have to have a reason, uh, but I can border hop and I can go as far north as Ormo, which is the north of the end of the Gold Coast. 
Uh, so that's all within my rights to do that, and I can go and do that work. Uh, but because I went to, I had a gig at Byron Bay on Sunday, meant that I can't cross the border for fourteen days. So I have to isolate for fourteen days. Uh, so I've cancelled a couple of gigs in the hope to. Re- so I cancelled two gigs so that I can hopefully get pick up four at the end of the month because that gives me. 14 days in isolation to then go and do those gigs. And, and, you, and you, you stay there until you've done those gigs and then come back and then isolate again. Is that right? Or Well, no, because I can hop back and forward across the border. At oh, right. Okay. Gotcha. Um, as long as I don't go um, one postcode south of me, then right. I'm all right. <laughs> you know, wow. it's, a, it's a crazy setup. But, hey, look, it's, it's something mm. and it means that I've got – both my base players are in Queensland. So I've got a guy north of Brisbane and I've got a guy on the Gold Coast. And I've got two fill-in guys, a fill-in drummer and a fill-in keyboard player, both in Queensland. So as as you alluded to, we're going to do stat decks to say that we haven't been to Sydney or Melbourne. Uh, if we need to, we'll go get a test to say that we're COVID-free. Mm. Uh, and I've already spoken to the venues and they're going to write letters to say, look, these boys can't be replaced. It's a sold-out ticketed event. Uh, we're going to lose revenue. Where And this this mm. premier of Queensland is all about protecting Queensland businesses. So I'm hoping that with all of that, all of that paperwork that they will grant an exemption. But at the moment I'm leaving them alone because there are people that work in hospitals up here that can't cross the border to go to work. Right? They, so I'm going to just, I think that we should just leave them to sort that out and the essential workers can get sorted and they get their exemptions and then I'll be a pest after that. <laughs> <laughs> Cockroaches. Cockroaches. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's something Victor Round said um, to me oh, a couple of years ago when I interviewed him. We're all, all musicians are cockroaches, man. Whatever happens, yeah. there could be explosions and bombs and buildings falling down. We come out. We just come out when we're ready. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, man, let's roll it back. Early days, Rob, Rob Rhodes, um, you're from Sydney originally, am I right? Yeah, southwest, born and, born and raised. Yep. Um, when did music become sort of prevalent? Oh, look, from a very early age, my parents were um, – I think my dad actually played drums when he was really young before being, you know, that generation, the baby boomers went out to work pretty quickly. So he kind of gave up on that dream and started laying bricks with his old man. But, uh, yeah, their record collection was killer, man. Um, mm. My dad, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin – uh, status Quo, Doobie Brothers, The Stones, Party Boys, Hollies, like all of that stuff, um, Joe Walsh. Mm. And and then mum, you know, she had the tearjerkers, you know, the Neil Sedakas and the crooners like Barry Manilow. But she loved the Beatles too and, and the Kinks and Dave Clark Five. So it's just always so much music around the house and there was countdown and sounds on the TV and later on rage. So man our house was full of music. My dad played footy um at a pretty high level. 
um, back in the day. And so there were parties and it was just stacks of vinyl, dozens of people, just music playing to all hours. So, yeah, really early on, man, completely exposed to music. What about and, um, what about playing? Was it was there a um, was it always guitar to start with, or did you start off singing along to stuff? Or and if it was guitar, was there a was there a moment? Was there a guitarist, a, a solo that you heard that was like, man, that's me? Um, I, I started year eight. I began on saxophone. I was in primary school choir, uh, but I mainly just honestly I mimed the whole time in choir until the teacher walked past and then I would sing. I saw it as I saw it as an excuse to get out of class, yeah, even yeah. back in primary school. Yeah. Uh, that was my first visit to the opera house and I never actually did any of the concerts though. I always had an excuse to not turn up to the concerts. I'd just go to the rehearsals because they got me out of school. And, uh, and then year nine elective popped up. Now, I didn't stick with saxophone very long, a few months. Uh, the year nine electives came up and there was keyboard and guitar. So it wasn't just music class, which we'd done the standard um, music classes through high school. Uh, so I ticked both. I'm like, I want to learn keyboard and guitar. And you know what happens with that sort of stuff. They go, no, the classes are at the same time, so pick one. So Eddie Van Halen did that. He played keyboard and guitar. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely right. But uh <laughs> Yeah, so I chose guitar, and so for two years in high school, we had uh, uh, Mr. K, Mr. Kuzmierski, who uh, taught us just whatever we wanted. There was no real, look, there was no standard music teaching. It was, here are the chords, what songs do you want to learn, here's some basic scales, and it was mostly about preparing for performance. So. You'd have two school concerts a year where you'd perform. And I think in the second years when I started to write my own songs, which then spawned me on to start singing. And, yeah, the rest is history. I, I think the my fondest memory of obviously my dad's record collection, guitarist galore, um, but when I started MTV on Channel 9 with old Richard Wilkins, late night they did a guitar heroes special and just about everything on that i wore that vhs out um it had van halen on it it had i think at that time the biggest influence was eric clapton's 24 nights oh man and so it's same here Oh, that, mate, that, what that, a band eh? that vhs you know just, there was the three four versions of it but you know, I, I I've may may have mentioned this before in a podcast, but um, I've got images in my head of Steve Ferroni playing those Sunburst Pearl drums. You know, uh, uh, incredible Nathan East on bass and Phil and Gaines on keyboards, and man, that was it was killer. And it was oh. it was it was that band there, that little four piece. That's the one I watched over and over over again. And I think the first one was it had um, it was kind of. It was just a lot of the the um the Derek and the Dominoes type sort of stuff early on, wasn't it? And then then when that sort of four piece came out, and then I think the last the last one was the full band. 
and the just, orchestra where yeah. they did um, bell bottom blues and yeah, man, uh, some of his soundtrack stuff that Clapton had worked on and yeah, the blues stuff with Buddy Guy and yeah, yeah, you're just sitting there going, oh man, this guy, twenty four nights at um, what was the what's that place in London um, um, where it was recorded? Albert Hall. Albert Hall, that's it. Yeah, yeah twenty four yeah. nights at the Royal Albert Hall and. Just the different incarnations of the band, and yep. uh, I think that sort of stuck with me because every sort of project I've been a part of, I've tried to think, okay, how can we offer the same band in a different way yeah, all right. of the time? And and now I think that subconsciously just embedded in in me with everything I've done in cool. my sort of music career. Mm. And because yeah, I mean what you're saying that that's what you're doing now isn't it like i was looking at your website or your different websites and you have got different incarnations of your group and and i, I mean i don't think it's that's not an original concept but the way you've got it set up it looks looks very professional and you go out as a solo or as, as a duo your band um you 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 can provide session musicians all that sort of stuff it's set up really good yeah that was that was the idea but behind road trip entertainment was uh, just to have a small staple of of acts that you know I'm a part of all of them. Mm. That's the that's the, that's the that idea, isn't it? it? Yeah. But it's um, <laughs> having having so much experience in the hospitality industry, running hotels, that every venue needs something different. Yep. You know they have so that sort of that was behind that idea too is. You know, one venue down the road's got six hundred bucks for a for a duo, um, but then they might only have six hundred bucks for a band or a trio. So it's like, okay, well, instead of taking a pay cut and saying to everybody, "You got to go pay for one hundred fifty bucks," mm. it's gone. Well, if your budget's six hundred bucks, this is what entertainment I can offer you. Mm-hmm. Instead of taking pay cuts or whatever, um, it's just like, okay, well, you've got that. I think the solo is best suited for you. Or mm. if you if you don't think you can carry a concept band, then maybe it's just mix mix covers and we use a trio. Or um, you know, so it's just it's being adaptable, uh, which I learned in the twelve years of being full time playing in Sydney is just being able to adapt um, to the changing trends out there, which. You know, it can happen overnight. We saw it in Sydney with the lockdowns. That's what mm. sort of got me out of the industry in the first, took a couple of years off because, again, yep. I saw that coming and all the venues just stopped live entertainment. Yep. Um, so, yeah, just preparing and adapting I think is is a good skill to have. Mm. I want to ask you a little bit later on about the hotel management and venue yeah. managing and that kind of stuff because that's that's quite interesting. Um, well, let's go, go back. Um now you watched the twenty four nights that was inspirational and stuff. Um, did you go home and start trying to mimic Clapton? Did you have a teacher at that stage, or um, you just working it out yourself? Completely self taught, man. Yep. Um, yep. Which I have regrets about, but I also have um, like I'm happy with how I went about it. Um, I used to just jam along with records. I never learnt any songs really. Uh, I used to stack 50 cent pieces on top of the records to get them to slow down to concert pitch. Uh, cool. Cause I don't know if you remember, um, I think you're a bit younger than me, but 
all the old LPs used to spin at 33 and a third. Yep. Um, and then the record players just became 33. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I, I do remember. Sort I'm, of probably bit, I'm probably a little bit older than you think. How old do you think I am? <laughs> oh, I think you're about 39, 40 nah, maybe. Nah, 45, man. Oh, dude, you're older than yeah. me. Oh, am I? Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 44, man. So. I was saying this the other day. I've just been in these situations these last, probably this last month, six weeks, where just about everyone I've talked to, not not just on the podcast, but in different things, they say their age and then I realise I'm older than them and I just feel old. <laughs> yeah, but dude, you know, you wear it well, as Rod Stewart said. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, so I think my dad, when I was learning guitar, my dad said something to me and he said, oh, so, you know, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Where do you want to take this thing? And I said, so I was probably 16, I think, at the time mm. or 17 and I'd gone out, I'd left school uh, to chase my dream of playing music full time, and we're on the. I'm labouring for him, and yeah, he says to me, "What do you, like? Where do you want to take this?" And I said, "You know, when when Santana comes on the radio, and you know it's Carlos, and you know when Blackmore comes on, you know it's him and Clapton." I said that's what I want. Like I want to just develop my own sound, my own tone. So. I intentionally didn't learn to play songs unless I had to for a gig. Uh, and then I would just learn the basics of it. I've gotten much better at it now, but, um, yeah, I would just learn the basics and, and to m- take my own spin on it. Yep. You know, I might have more gain, less gain. I might turn something on. You know, I might use a Les Paul when it's a Strat on the on the recording. Just try to bring my own thing to it. and. I think I've accomplished that uh, in, you know, in anonymity. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, that was what I set out for was just to just to carve out my own my own thing rather than learning and becoming a, a type a kind of mimic because I saw that really early on with a couple of players that I was I grew up with mm. that man, God, they could shred. You know, they could play one or fade to black from start to finish without mm. making a mistake and I'd be sitting there going, oh, yeah, that's cool. And then we'd get in a band situation and go, oh, let's play a 12 bar or let's play Sunshine of Your Love or some Cold Chisel song and let's let's just jam it, let's improvise. And those guys didn't know what to do. They would just stand there going, trying to play those licks that they learnt from Metallica and it just would fall seriously flat and to the point where they would come up to me and go, man, how are you doing that improvise? Are you practicing that stuff? Like, um, man, it's five notes, hey, it just repeats. <laughs> and here's the shapes. It's really, you know, you just got to feel it. And um, and that, that's what I took away from a lot of those, the Hendrixes and the Claptons and that pentatonic-based thing, which I've used this uh covid thing to break out of quite quite a bit but that's my comfort zone and that's where I, yeah i think that did i answer your question there <laughs> yeah man yeah man um you mentioned sunshine of your love and that that was one of the songs uh on the 24 nights that that four piece band did and oh yeah that um 
because when Ginger Baker played the drums originally for Cream, it was it was quite simple, right? But then Steve Ferrani went and I just I still have that picture in my head of him playing that. You know, and he plays tra- traditional grip as well. And yeah, like I said, with that sunburst um, pearl drum kit, you know, it's ingrained in my memory. Man, it's yeah. just there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, now, your your voice, when did you develop your voice? Because I think you've got a fantastic voice. Um, you know, it's – it's. I think that's definitely well, – it's probably a dumb – it's pretty obvious, but that's definitely a part of your sound. It's unique. Um, I was listening to your um, EP today. And, yeah, um, yeah I, I can't compare your voice to anybody because that's what I do sometimes. I'll, I'll listen to music and go, that person kind of sounds like, ah, I couldn't do it, man. You're all on your own there. Yeah. It's, Thanks, it's really cool. Good on you. Uh, I've got, you know, I've got big influences early on a lot of the Australian singers, so Diesel and Jimmy Barnes and Nick Barker, that raspy rock thing, and obviously the, the 60s and 70s stuff. Uh, I discovered Paul Rogers, who honestly has the greatest rock voice of all time. And if anybody hasn't seen him with Queen, just listen to what he does to those songs when he was in Queen. Right. Just makes them his own, you know, and that's a really difficult thing to do. Um, Man, early on I just I feel like I just screamed. Like I just feel like it was Jimmy Barnesing every weekend and uh, blowing my voice out. Uh, over the years, uh, it's it's gotten, you know, I worked on it a lot um, just from gigging, man. It's just gigging fitness. Yep. I had yep. a vocal coach for about six lessons who just taught me how to breathe uh, because I was nearly passing out in those early days doing four-hour <laughs> gigs. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't know where it, where it came from because really early on I was it's pretty terrible. Mum used to, but then I was trying to sing Van Halen's Dreams at fourteen, and uh, Mum would yell down the hallway, "Shut up! You can't sing." Oh, uh, but <laughs> show you. But that's all right, man. Like you got to take your knocks. You know, you, I've heard way worse stuff in pubs being yelled at me. So um, <laughs> it's just like I've always had that fight response. So it's like, well, if I can't sing, I've just got to work harder at it. And um, yep. I didn't really sing again until I started writing at, in those last couple of years of high school and that's sort of where it started to develop and then going to jam nights and singing the odd song and, um, yeah, going from there. And I don't have, again, no training. I don't know what my range is. I I don't know how my voice is going to be when I get to a gig until I sing the first couple of songs. Right. I'm like I'm a total, you know, total noob as far as that sort of stuff goes, but mm-hmm. I'm lucky because there's not much that I can't sing. Um, and in recent years, my highs have gotten higher and my lows have gotten stronger and mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, that's something we could talk about, but that's that's diet-based. But, uh, yeah, I don't know where it comes from. I think it's just a gumbo of all of my influences that I've just sort of mentioned there. Right. So saying diet based, you you're vegan. So yeah. yeah. So um how long have you been vegan? Let's just I'm just trying to go back on the voice thing. So you can there's there's a definite 
correlation between you not eating meat, becoming vegan, um, to the to your voice being able to get those highs now? You, you, that's Ab- absolutely, man. Five wow, years I've been vegan, yep. and it was almost instant. You know, within a couple of weeks, I noticed that my my voice recovered faster. Right. Um, and my range was extended because of that it's all comes down to inflammation, right? So right. if you don't have inflammation, things heal faster, uh, things are less impeded, so there's no swelling. Um, and yeah, there was just there was nothing. It seemed like there was nothing in my way uh, to to prevent my voice from being reaching its potential, let's say. Um, I think it was sort of hamstrung by by my diet before, and yeah, just when I came out of the two years off, it just went like it was like turning a switch, and all of a wow. sudden I went, I could never sing that before, and wow. how how am I doing this? Like, and then yeah. I would do five nights in a row without breaking a sweat, really, like waking up in the morning worrying, am I going to be able to sing today? And um, yeah, it was man. It's been a it's been a revelation, honestly. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. And you also you you've stopped drinking as well. As he sips tea, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I quit. I quit drinking. I don't know, fourteen, fifteen months ago. Okay. And uh, hey, that was a blessing during COVID too. It was one less expense I had to worry about. Jeez, oh, I, th- I think I double. I think I doubled my amount of drinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure I'm not the only one. Um, so was that uh, the, the stop drinking out of necessity as well or was that a challenge to yourself to do that? I look like all of us, uh, I would do, you know, a few months a year where I'd go off it and yep. uh, but then you'd go years without taking a break. Uh, yep. Having yep. been raised in and around pubs and then working in pubs from 18 whether it was, you know, behind the bar or on stage, uh, it, it's just, it's just been, that's been, that's the lifestyle that I've been around. So the culture of that uh, is definitely embedded. Um, but uh, a little incident towards the middle of last year and I went on a bender and I just thought, you know, this isn't helping anyone. It's definitely not helping me. Mm. And so I just decided, look, I want to, I just want to try and quit. Uh, my wife and I wanted to try, well, I'm getting personal here, we wanted to try for a kid. Mm-hmm. So apparently it's a 90-day cycle to get alcohol out of your system. Mm-hmm. So that was my first goal. Uh, and then the other, the other reason to quit drinking was New South Wales bought in an instant loss of license over 0.05. Okay. So it's kind of like this perfect storm of reasons tapping me on the shoulder to, hey, look, don't drink. Uh, do a 1,000, well, pre-COVID I was doing a 1,000 kilometres a week to gigs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to lose your licence, that's it for me because, you know, the wife isn't going to drive me to every gig and it's pretty difficult to carpool when, at the extremes of our band members, we live six to seven hours apart. So it's, um, yeah, it just became a, 
a no-brainer really for me. Congratulations, man. Well done. Thanks. Well done. Um, now let's talk a little bit about the about gigging in the in the Sydney scene. Um, it's something I did for a long time. Um, now, were you playing in sort of local cover bands, um, or was it always sort of your original stuff that that you were pushing at that time? Um, look, this the scene where, especially Southwest Sydney, it was. Um, you were kind of expected to play originals and covers. So when you got booked, and that's something that's sadly missing from the scene these days is, you know, you throw one or two covers in, uh, sorry, one or two originals in each set. Uh, you'd do a CD, you'd sell CDs at your gig, um, you would record, and you just that was part of it. So, yeah, even early on, uh, my brother and I had a band together and we had a 13 track like recording that we did and just those gig those songs there was 15 or 16 songs in the end i think that always sort of made into the set every night and then the next band which was which i joined which was juvenile justice changed to dvs that we did the same thing with that i was like well let's start writing and we'll put them into our show and recorded a CD and did an e- a little single that sold just at gigs. There was no real release thing. It was just, hey, here's a few extra bucks. So, yeah, that, that was early on. And then it was I, I got out of the full-time working thing to go and chase playing music full-time and that's when it sort of entered that corporate corporate gigging world with an agency and, bookings and contracts and, and yep. that's when the originals sort of went by the by mostly the last 20 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <coughs> um, so what, what was, what was some of the agencies you were working for or do, doing work for, but did you actually work um, as an agent or in, in that environment or were you sort of, no, I I used to just work direct with venues most of the time in those early okay. days. We're just yep. playing the locals or answering an ad in the drum media, yep. you know, when you wanted to step out and play the Forest Inn or North Point Tavern, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> all those ones that we all played yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Uh, but uh, then when I got into the, into the corporate sort of scene, um, when I say corporate, I just mean you know, not doing corporate gigs, but just in that with an agent and wages and whatever. Yeah. Uh, that was, yeah, I worked with Sphere. So mm-hmm. there was a band called Rock Dot Now. And, yeah, so that was with Sphere. So, man, some heady days there that people, mm-hmm. I know we have a lot of mutual friends and they all remember those days. And mm-hmm. as good as they were, the stories I heard from the 80s and the 70s, doesn't even compare, but for us, <laughs> we just man, we we got our we got our nineties, <laughs> yeah, 90s, that's right, thousands, eh? That's us. Oh, the mean fiddler, you know, oh, like man. when the mean yep. fiddler was pumping. There's yeah. what fifteen hundred pl- people in that beer barn. Just is it. yeah, it's it's a feeling I'll never forget. And the early days of the Three Eyes Monkeys and um, that's some of those, like, it's a shit like that. <laughs> 
<laughs> Dude, I um I got a great story about that place. So okay, um I played it for years, and then um the owner the owner got in touch with me to teach his son guitar, and I was living at Covelli at the time, and they had this beautiful place at Bronte, and so that sort of started, and I remember we used to be able to use the dumb waiter and take all the stuff up the dumb waiter, but it, you know. There's a couple of dumb musicians that ruined the dumb waiter for us. <laughs> um, so you had to carry everything up. At the time, I had this quad box that used to be owned by Mark Lazotte and it had four 12L, EV12Ls in it. So it weighed about 70 kilos. And I just remember saying to Steve at, after one of the lessons, I said, oh, mate, do you reckon you can uh, let me use the dumb waiter? Like, just let the staff know that it's okay for Rob to use the dumbwaiter because this thing, we, I can't carry it. And so he's, yeah, mate, don't go. Just say, just say I said it was all right. So I used to be able to just chuck all my my rig in the dumbwaiter and take it up and poor old, <laughs> poor old drummer had to carry his stuff oh, up the stairs. Man. That's the worst. <laughs> but I always helped, man. I'm a lugger, hey. Yeah, so that's good. We always, we always helped each other lug. But, um, yeah. yeah, that man, but that gig was killer. You know, you'd go and do a trio gig on a Wednesday night and be pumping. Scruffy Murphy's I did fill-ins yep. a long time for Stephen Way. Uh, yeah, uh, for Anthems and a couple of other bands there. And, man, it was just pumping all the time. And yep. it's a shame that I don't know where the next generation of musicians, where they're going to cut their teeth because, yeah, you know, a lot of those gigs are gone and um, the scene well, you could probably speak more to it than I can. I haven't been in Sydney for five years, but still know everybody there. But everybody's doing more gigs for less money, and they're not they're not the great the greatest gigs in the world either. No, that's right, exactly right. Um, so the restaurant managing and the venue management, and also the the hotel management stuff. Were you doing that in Sydney, or that's something that you've done over these last five years? Yeah, well, when I turned 18, I, I got a job at the local pub there in Ingleburn. I don't know if you know where that is. But, um, yeah, man. Played, yeah. played there many times. <laughs> yeah. Lucky to get the, out a few times as well. <laughs> now, you probably got out because of me, mate. That's why. Oh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, eight years there I spent. And uh, like anything, you get you get trapped you get trapped by money, you get trapped by um, just you get comfortable, you know, and every time I tried to leave that place, they would give me more money and so I stayed and it took a lot to leave and then try to chase that, play music full time because I had a lot of friends that were struggling doing that um, and I knew it would be a tough slog but uh yeah, so I did that for eight years. I was two IC there um, towards the end, doing everything, man, from mm. purchase orders to, you know, invoicing. And uh, and then, yeah, I went and I played music full-time for 12 years. And then after that, that was when the whole Sydney lockdown thing came in. So I went and applied for a job at ALH and got the two IC job at the Narrabeen Sands and, pretty much immediately took control of the entertainment program there. So just, mate, that was 
a great time because not only did I have success in building that venue up to a great gig again, but I got to hang with so many people that I'd hardly spent any time with over the years, fellow musicians that I'd, you know, we'd been friends on MySpace and then Facebook but never really met (laughs) because we were all just gigging, you know. We even shared band members at times, but the Dave Whites and the Nicky Curtis and um, uh, Bernie Sedgerton and then guys like Lockie Doley and Krishna Jones. Like I just booked everyone I knew was good, you know, and just, yeah, it was so much fun, man. It was, it brought a lot of joy uh, and even booked Diesel there. And yeah, cool. got to got to hang again with Mark, and uh, that was great. That was my last day at the Sands before they gave me my own pub uh, to right. to run. Right. And yeah, so I went to Pimble then before moving up here and running a pub on the Gold Coast, which uh, didn't last very long because yeah, that just that environment didn't suit me. They weren't focused on food or entertainment; they were focused on other things, which. Weren't really a priority for me. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Now so I went back sand- to playing music. Yeah, yeah, good on you. Um, now with the Sands, did did uh, when, when when did you meet Darren? Darren Jackson. Ooh, so Darren and I have been friends for I don't know. Well, I met him maybe maybe twenty years ago. Not quite seventeen, eighteen years ago. Uh, he did he did sound one night at Tracks Nightclub. Tracks at Epping. Yep. Epping, yep. <laughs> And uh, he just, he heard me sing and he goes, oh, you'd be interested in, you know, maybe joining my band full time. The singer's going back to New Zealand. And I said, yeah, man, I'm I'm up for anything, you know. I hardly ever say no to anything. So they had a band that played the Stain Hotel in Manly every Sunday. And at that time, I think they'd been every Sunday for 10, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I became a mixed nut. And, uh, yeah, that's sort of how Darren and I met and we've been sort of in, in, and, in and out of bands together ever since. And, yeah, he moved up here not long after I did mm-hmm. uh, and just as things were starting to evolve with the 70s show, um, he came into that picture and went, hey, <laughs> coming out another element, I need, a, I need someone kicking me in the bum. You know, like yeah. even even when you're driving the bus, you need somebody to just go, hey, this will work better or, yep. you know, that doesn't work. And honestly, man, he's one of the best in business as far as drummers who are musicians and can see what's happening out there because you guys have the best seat in the house as far as understanding what's happening on the dance floor, what's not working. Um, what what could work, changing up grooves, um, all of that. And he's honestly one of the best in the business and that's why, you know, I, I dragged him into living in the 70s. Uh, just to take it to the next level, man, because you do need that person to bounce ideas off and he's been in the business a long time and I trust him and I love him. And, yeah, that's that's our story. <laughs> that's, he's a cool cat. Yeah, the, yeah. The- um, when you mentioned the sand, because because um, he was looking after that room, the last band that I played, I played in in Endless Summer Beach Party for 
four or five years. Yeah. Um, and then when we would play there, Darren was looking after that room and also the Collaroy. The, yeah, the beach, so um, yeah. when I left Narrabeen, I wanted to leave it with somebody I trusted. Yep, yep. Um, and I left it. I asked Darren if he would take over when I yep. left um, and keep it keep it going strong, you know, and he and he did that. Yeah, cool. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast. As you know, the Gig Life podcast is free. You don't have to pay anything ever. But if you find the value in the Gig Life podcast, you can donate or leave a tip. Go to thegiglifepodcast.com, click on that donate button and give as little or as much as you like and just know that anything you give will go back into creating the great content for this podcast. All right, back to the episode. Now, what's the hairiest moment you've seen in a hotel, like being being that hotel manager? Can you, have you got any stories you can tell there? <laughs> well, I was just <laughs> sitting with some friends in... Suffolk Park the other night and we were talking about this exact same thing. So Okay. Oh cool. Oh man, I've seen I've seen guns, I've seen knives, machetes, I've seen some of the bloodiest fights. You like UFC got nothing on some of these pub brawls. Yeah. yeah. Um you know, oh dude. There was there's a couple of Anzac Day is usually the worst. Um Fights breaking out, pool cues. Uh, but one of the best ones was actually I was playing a gig. Um, and it's it was kind of a – it was an okay Southwest Sydney gig. Out, I won't mention the hotel's name, but it's let's yeah. just say it's near Bankstown Airport. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, so we're, we're, into the, we're into the second set, I think, and – all of a sudden there's a pool table in front of us and a fight breaks out and they get pushed outside and every local from the public bar on the way out grabs a pool cue or a jigger or something and runs out to the car park and, you know, I just bought like a $4,000 Gretsch Duo jet so I just took that off in the case underneath the stage and picked up my Strat. And the manager comes running, oh, just take a break. You know, we're going to go sort this out. Before we knew it, there was pole air. There was about 50 people brawling in the car park. There was <laughs> eight to ten police cars. And obviously all our cars are out there getting, yeah, yeah. you know, people shoved into. And, <laughs> um, yeah, man, like it's, you know, there's, some, there's been some crazy, absolute crazy, crazy times, you know, the, I wouldn't witness. I wouldn't wish on my enemy some of the things that I've witnessed in pubs, and yep. that's the thing. Like I'd I'd really love to get on a lobby group for the music industry, you know, and talk to politicians about from the perspective of someone who's been inside pubs for twenty odd years, and say, look, nothing's changed. It's better than it's ever been. It's just that people have phones and you get bad press when people put stuff up on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever or send it to a news outlet. Um, that's what's made it worse. It's, it's, it's way better than it used to be. You know, there was no people getting cut off. There was no nothing. There, were, there was smoking inside. Like we were, yeah. we've all done gigs I remember to go back to the Three Wise Monkeys, man, you couldn't see four people deep from the front of the stage. 
Um, I used to have to smoke when I played. Oh yeah, but I, I don't know. It's just I mean, God, I was I was almost a chain smoker at that stage. But you know, the, I'd have to smoke in my mouth, and the smoke's going in my eye, and my eyes are watering, and then I drop the smoke on my head, and I'd, I'd burn a hole in the head, but the head wouldn't split because when you're burning that hole, you're also sealing the cut. Yeah. So there was I had one drum head at one stage. It had three little holes in it, eh? And I left it there as long as I could. Eventually, it let go. But yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, man, those were the days. Yeah, but I think that's what that's what our industry needs. It needs people that have been in the, been in there and lived it, um, and can just give them some some perspective. Because even let's take this COVID thing for instance. And I've been out there playing gigs where everyone has to be seated, and you've got police walking in on an hourly basis and threatening breaches to these places because someone's standing up. Um, Look, I know that I've got a lot of friends who are police and I know they do a tough job and, and, but there has to be some common sense and it comes down to legislation and these politicians have a black or white, black and white approach to know if you want a venue, if you want to be, if you want to, do this if you want to put on entertainment if you want to you know have a license then you're responsible for everybody else's behavior now i've been in some situations where i'm lucky i've been there when something's happened in order to pull it up and prevent catastrophe which could ruin the hotel you know you get a breach and your insurance goes up and your licensing fees go up like everything you just get hit one after the other when you have an incident, right? So, but no one's held accountable personally. It's like, it's not, why is it some, why is it a third party's responsibility to police individuals' behaviour? You know, like we're, we're sanctioned babysitters basically and until we can get that right, until we can make people accountable for their decisions, um, it's going to be really hard to get this industry back anywhere where it needed to be because this has just given councils and local government, state, federal government more impetus to put restrictions on venues. And now it's you got to be seated and you know you got to be this far apart. And and I agree with all that stuff, but if you get an on-the-spot fine in Melbourne for not wearing a mask, then why can't they just go, oh, okay, well, that person is not doing the right thing in the venue. Let's go and give them the grief and not walk up to the venue manager or the duty manager and say, right, you're nicked because this guy's not doing the right thing. It's, yeah, right, it's I understand just, that. You know, it does my head in and... That's just a problem with society. It's it's not going to be fixed anytime soon. But I kind of went so, off on a tangent there, but I thought it's no, kind it's of good. relevant. Yeah, yeah. So what's it going to take to turn that around then, in your opinion? I don't know. I don't think you can. I think society's come too far where it's always someone else's fault. Mm. Um, you know, it's not my fault that I got drunk and punch someone it's uh 
that's their fault for serving me too much, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's not my fault that I got in the car and 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 killed someone. It's, you know, you shouldn't have let me drive. Um, I, I don't know, man. It's what does it take? You have to walk into a venue and sign a waiver to say that you accept personal responsibility for anything that happens within the venue and the venue's not to blame. Like, get like America where everything's about waivers, everything's about you're, you're taking personal responsibility here, so if anything happens, it's your fault. Um, I hope it doesn't get to that. I was an advocate of a license to drink <laughs> right. because having been in that industry, that again, it's one person can ruin it for everybody. Yep. You know, one person, and we saw that with the Sydney lockdowns. That one yeah, guy that. Yep. with a one punch attack shuts mm-hmm. the whole city down. Yep. Because some look, look, the parents, they, they had it tough, but you've got some lobby group going after everything. You've got the Daily Telegraph going after venues, and there is you could see that unfolding, like what what they wanted to achieve and they achieved it. And then for them to get off that horse and step on the, look what they've done to Sydney, you know, it's shut down, it's closed, Sydney after dark. It's like you can't have your, you can't go after it and then after it go, oh, look what you did. Like you're you're (laughs) part of the problem. And, yeah, until, until we can get past that, I just, I don't know what, what, the solution is but yeah that that license to drink man if you you take people's passports away if they mess up in public hey you're never traveling again you can't go anywhere you can't leave the country this is but no one wants to take responsibility again they want you know they go drink driving and they take it to court and go oh but i need my license why didn't you think of that before you you know went out three times the limit and dropped your kids at school putting everybody's lives in danger it's it's just become, yeah. Everything's just messed up, man. I don't I don't know. You know, I'm a positive person, and you can go down this rabbit hole, but uh, yeah, personal responsibility. I'm a massive advocate of that. When you find yourself going down those rabbit holes, how do you pull yourself out? What do you say to yourself? Do you go for a walk? Give yourself yeah. a slap in the face. <laughs> well, man, I got the beautiful Pacific Ocean kind of just out my door. So yeah, yeah you I can got go some f- cool views going on there. Yeah, yeah, I can go for a walk, go down the creek, go watch the whales. Um, yeah. But what a good trick is just to always see um, see the positives in it. So, mm. and then you know everybody's got complaints and criticisms. But my way out is always to offer a solution. Mm-hmm. So even if nobody hears it, or I'm just, I'm just, it's just my wife and I shooting the breeze and brainstorming. It's, um, it gets it, it changes your mindset. So mm-hmm. it's, it's finding the, you know, it's one thing to go criticize, criticize, criticize. But do you have a solution? And if you can come up with a solution, voice it, put it on Facebook. It doesn't matter if no one sees it, but yep. it. It's, it's again, it's, it's habit forming and just being able to go, oh, I can see a light at the end of the tunnel. If only I could get this to someone. And that sort of comes back to my, 
my the thing I said earlier about becoming a lobbyist or even getting into politics at some stage that um, being able to have that voice and and have a solution um, rather than just saying no 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 you can't do that no you can't do that it should be no you can't do that but you can do this yeah um, and that's sort of my way out of it is always just trying to find a, find a solution to the problem. Do you spend a lot of time on besides the your live streaming and, and um, uh, you know, posting for your gigs and promoting and that kind of stuff. Do you find yourself on social media very, very much? Ooh, yeah, probably too much, man. I, yeah. I, I'm trying to pull away from it. It's been responsible mm-hmm. for a few breakups um, with in my personal life. Um, oh, you know, right. okay. man, just being vegan, you lose friends. But um, then when that's, you're – that's shit. You know, in, just introduce politics or uh, anything else, and it stirs up a a hornet's nest. And and I'm as guilty as anyone going into a room and throwing a grenade just to see what happens. I'm, yeah. I'm not a troll. I don't like to troll people. I like to try and keep it positive, but give someone a different perspective uh, is important, even if you just change one person's perspective on an argument. Uh, but I've kind of gotten away from that. It's more just going in with a positive attitude or just type your response and then delete it. Like get it out, get it out, <laughs> vent, yeah. and then just put it there and don't click type, send. Just delete type, and move on. Or, okay, type, send, <laughs> screenshot, delete. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, yeah. Don't tend, I don't tend to – there's a lot of things that roll me up on social media, but I don't, I don't tend to comment. Um, I'd rather if I see that person or I'd rather actually have that conversation with somebody. Yeah. I don't, I don't, don't like doing it on social media, but that's just me. No, I'm, I'm very, uh, I, I don't mind being combative and, uh, just challenging people. Was uh, that- you posted something the other day. Um, you'd taken a photo, and I think you said it's been quite a combative day today. <laughs> had yeah. you been on social media and ruffled some feathers? Had you? Or <laughs> um, oh, look, it, it, there was a there was a couple of things. There was yeah, th- there was obviously the COVID thing, and yeah, people um, with conspiracy theories and and whatever else. And hey, look. If you believe in the conspiracy theory, that's fine. I don't have a problem with you. I've gone down all kinds of conspiracy theories. I don't have a problem with you holding that belief. But don't put people's lives in danger just to prove a point because the facts are out there. There's people dying regardless of I think um, Ice-T was on the the Mark Maron podcast and he put it best. He said when he was in the military, when the bullets started flying, you took cover. Once you take cover, you you find out where it's coming from, yeah. you know, and then devise a plan. But this just completely ignoring it and and I, I, I don't see the point in that because as you've seen unfold in Victoria and what's happened now with the Queensland border, mm-hmm. the those people who are just putting all of us behind. You know they're putting they're putting musicians' livelihoods, mental health at at risk. But even 
worse than that. They're putting people in aged care, they're putting doctors, nurses' lives at risk for the sake of saying that you don't believe in something. Well, you know, people don't believe in climate change either, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, And it's just it's got to get to that point where something needs to bring us all together because I feel like at the beginning of this, um, well, even go back to the bushfires, man, because that brought the whole country together, right? Nobody thought, oh, bushfires are a hoax. These people's houses aren't burning down. They (laughs) they don't think that. It's on the news. It's real. People's houses are burnt down. And who comes to the rescue? Queen, John Farnham, like every musician and actor gets on. They do a fundraiser for the RFS and everyone's like, wow, this is great. You know, the whole country comes together. COVID hits and I would say the majority of people came together for that. Everyone went, Mm -hmm. yep, we're staying home. Mm -hmm. And the problem we had was we contained it by doing that. Um. But because when you don't have a fallout, people go, see, there was nothing to worry about. And you had what happened in Melbourne and everyone went out yeah. thinking, oh, we got no problem and now look. Yep. You know, so it's there needs to be less division. I don't know what brings us together, but it always seems to be tragedy brings us together. But this one hasn't seemed to, it seemed to still split us a little bit out there. It seems like it has to get. I, I like. I don't like saying this, but it seems like for for a lot of people, they need to see it get a lot worse before they're going to go. Oh, oh, okay, I get it now. <laughs> does, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I I always thought the best way to. Okay, let's take um we. We're getting way away from music here, but uh, (laughs) I I love this stuff, man. I'm passionate about it. But I thought if you wanted, you know, everyone was whinging about plastic bags being taken out of Coles and Woolworths um, because they don't, you know, it's inconvenient and they don't think plastic pollution is a problem. Well, grab that island of plastic that's in the Pacific Ocean and make sure it washes up on Bondi Beach, St Kilda and Manly and then – People that matter, people that have pull and money will go, this is a problem and it'll be solved overnight. You know, Coca-Cola won't have to use plant-based, you know, bottles and everything will have to be recycled and there'll be no plastic packaging in supermarkets. But because it's out there, because it's in Indonesia floating in the middle of wherever or washing up on Thailand beaches, nobody cares. You know, the people that matter do not care because it's not on their doorstep. But if if we could just somehow tow that stuff out here and yeah. dump it on those beaches, <laughs> man, we'll fix yeah. this problem overnight. You know? Yeah, I gotcha. It's funny, eh? Yeah. It's not funny. It's a it's a sad, strange, con- strange concept. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you do outside of music? Oh man, look. It's before this before this thing happened, music was all enveloping. Like it's it's a seven day a week job. For anyone that runs a band that's as busy as mine is and is a full time musician, 
you understand what it takes to make it successful and maintain it. So it's looking 12 months ahead. It's planning because, we're again, we're so far apart. That's if we go to the sunny coast, it's a three-hour drive for me, four-hour drive for uh, the keyboard player and a five-hour drive for the drummer. Um, you got to try and plan a whole weekend. So it's basically yeah. every week is is it you're 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 a tour manager, you know. Right. So you've got to work out okay who's who's staying where are they getting their own accommodation? Do I have to cover that? Um, are we getting joint accommodation? Is it included? How do I get three gigs up there on the same weekend, but the venues aren't too close together to um, for them to get their noses out of joint? Um, and then it's okay. Well, it's it's a week of promotion. You know, it's Facebook, it's um, Facebook marketing, paid marketing. It's just engagement, answering emails, questions. Man, it's a, it's it's an absolute full time job, honestly, to get if you want to get to that standard to to get to the next place. Man, I, I you know, we were, we were planning on taking it to the next level and. The amount of work that goes into that is that's uh, a whole nother whole nother thing. But yeah, so as far as having time to do other things, they're really it's just whenever I'm not doing music, I try to spend time with my wife. Um, yep. We've been together nearly nearly eighteen years, so um, you get out what you put in. So it's yeah, it's making maintaining that relationship as much as possible and um, making that a big part of my life. Uh, but, yeah, you do the beach and I go swimming all the time. And That's cool. Fairly active kind of dude. Um, I'd like to go, you know, just switch off sometimes and go into the movies for two hours, turn your phone off, disappear, mm-hmm. come out, answer the five missed calls. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. It's um, got a couple of boys in friends in Byron, and we jam every now and again just for fun. We have a social band. That's cool. Uh, so yeah, man, it's all music because I just I love it. The one thing that having those two years off showed me working anywhere between sixty and eighty hours a week in a pub is that the worst gig is still a great time. You know, appreciate it. I can play. There was a gig up here on the Gold Coast and you're like playing in a fishbowl, man. It's, you know, yep. you're a mile away from the audience. There's a Perspex screen um, separating you and the smoking area and everyone's inside watching the footy. Um, but you know what? You play for four hours, hardly get any notice and one or two people would, as they're walking out go, man, that was awesome. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Grab a business card, whatever. And that's yeah. all you need. And Sometimes I don't even need that. Sometimes I just amuse myself, but it really has to be bad to do that because it's my job to entertain people. So it's engaging in people that with people that don't want to be engaged with. Uh, that just makes it it makes it better for everybody. Um, I've really worked hard on that. Coming out of this is being an entertainer first and a musician second. Um, just all those things that you learn along the way and, and you see as a venue manager, you know, I'm having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day having to, it's a tough thing to do, but coaching a couple of 
couple of performers when I was at the Sands going, look, I know this is your thing. I'm not asking you to do anything outside of your thing, but I'm paying you to entertain my patrons. So the least you can do is stand up. You know, I've got a, I've got a stage here. I've turned the lights off. I've turned the TVs off. Um, Bring lights with you, focus them on yourself and, and stand up and be engaging. Um, Because I'm not, if, I'm not paying you to be background. It's not a cafe and I've got nightlife yeah. for background. Um, I want you to make these people's nights, you know. So there was a little bit of, well, I guess we call it a brief, wouldn't we? You know, every venue yeah. has a brief. So I, that was part of my brief was, you know, I want you guys to be noticed. So, you know, come bring that to the party because no one wants to be I know I don't. I don't want to sit in the corner and be ignored and uh, it's not why we do it. Uh, we do it because we like the attention and it's a. it might be a personality flaw, whatever, but it. we do it because we want attention. We want that applause. We want that instant gratification um, and the least you can do is put yourself in the best position to do that. And that that's just was what I'd ask of the performers that came into my venues, yeah. Do you see that a lot or do you see that often with young um, upcoming acts? We, you, we were talking before about how there's not going to be those venues and places that we had to cut our teeth and to go out and play. And, and um, are you seeing it at, were you seeing it back then in those venues of that happening a lot where kids are coming and sit down or reading everything from an iPad or from sitting? I mean, I, I see it often sort of the cafe type sort of thing where people are sitting there and they're, they're singing but they're reading off their phone. Um, to me, I look at that and don't think that looks professional and they probably could have done a little bit more work, but um, what do you thought? I think it, I might ask you this too because it's um, – yeah. is that – is that because that's the way that that the industry has gotten? Like I, I know that that's yeah. There's maybe. an attitude out there that there's not enough gigs for you to hold the same lineup together, right? So if you've got a band, if you're the band leader, and you go out and book gigs, that everybody's in four or five bands, every musician signed up with Baker Boys or the White Tree or Honey and Stone or any of those other um, sort of wedding bands and corporate bands, that it's really difficult to hold people in the one group because they just want to play and you might only have two or three gigs a month and they want six. So you got to have two or three bass players you can call, two or three drummers. So Mm. no one's learning the repertoire. You know, even even in some of these more organised things where there's a – um, where there's a set list, like a core set list, that people aren't learning yeah. the repertoire. They're just bringing an iPad along with them. Um, so, and that's I think that's because of the way the industry is. There's not enough gigs there anymore. So I can mm. understand why you would see a band out there with people reading iPads. The thing that gets me that I see a lot is their promo photos of the bands where they're all staring at a music stand or an iPad. I'm like, that's what you're supposed to be selling yourself 
and you're yeah. selling you're selling yourself staring at like how is that your promo picture like i don't <laughs> that sort of stuff I, that's the marketing person in me you know because i yeah, did a communications yeah, yeah, yeah. diploma but you just you look which, at which you realize which you you realized after a week that that's not what you wanted to do. I remember you were talking about that when we did the musicians in. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I think that's it. But if you're a soloist, the gigs aren't paid rehearsals. Like I go back to what I just said about a, a, an a venue hires an entertainer. They don't hire a shoegazer. Um, if you're going into a cafe and they want to create a vibe where it's just background, they pay you $80 in a meal, that's one thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you going into a pub or club that's full and people have come out for a good night. You should not be sitting there staring at an iPad. Um, like me, I have an iPad, okay? I'll put my hand up and there's the odd song, when I'm first learning it, I just have the lyrics there as a little fall on because there's only so many songs I can fit in here at one time and they start to fall out. Um, But it's also my mixer. So I have it on, but I have it nice and low, barely, you know, it's not in the eye line of what people are looking at. It's down near my knees, but it's my mixer. It's my break music. Everything's in there. So you've got like the, it's like a Mackie, you got the Maggie type mixer. Oh, with yeah, the- I've got the Soundcraft UI24. So you can understand if the front man or the soloist has got the iPad there for that. But if they're continually like head down staring at this or it's on a mic stand, you know, mm-hmm. like right there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's people are like, what are they doing? Like you know, they're, they're not looking at the audience. They're looking at that thing and um, – it also becomes a crux because once you start looking at charts all the time, you don't retain. There's something with the brain. It's very hard to retain the information if you don't pull away from it really early on. Um, and so, yeah, that back to what you said, it's it's really quite. It's really quite. Un, it's one of those unprofessional things. But back to that, is that with the. Um, not being able to retain players. Do you think that's one of those reasons why everyone's got charts and iPads? I don't know, but maybe, maybe it's what you were saying too. People are just not in bands that are playing lots of gigs together. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying that doesn't happen because it's not the case. I mean, it's, there's hundreds of bands around, but. Um, or they're getting 150 bucks and they don't care. <laughs> Possibly, or they've never had, you know, someone has, like you you were saying, you had to coach those those people. They probably didn't realise they were doing it, and, and that's what it takes, you know. I, like, I know when I was um, coming up as a, as a player, <laughs> my dad used to shut me down because I was a little bit arrogant and, and people would say, hey, great job, and I'd go, hey, yeah, I know, you know. <laughs> it, 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 takes, it, took my, it took my dad to say, pull your fucking head in. You know, and yeah. other little maybe people like that are not getting that person. Say, hey, man, that looks unprofessional. They just, you know, they and, maybe and they is it, think it's. The, I think is it maybe who they're influenced by too? You know, because Possibly. who are the 
like I play with a lot of female singers in the um in the white tree and mm. honestly man they they could all be Australian idols like they're fantastic right. they're all great singers they dance they talk like they got the gift of the gab like nobody's business that was a really kind of thin on the ground thing before but the the young guys that i see aren't aren't really like that they're sort of more of the sit down acoustic um you know they're playing the the sleepy angus and julia stone all that sort of stuff which really doesn't lend itself to being a big show you know so i'm sure that i'm sure that the influences and the current music industry is probably a lot to blame because you sort of you mimic what you see on tv you know when we were coming up we were seeing prince and michael jackson and (laughs) george michael and freddie mercury and all these people were just out there whitney houston they're just born entertainers, you know. They came from that school of everything was a show and the industry isn't really a show at the moment for, you know, for a lot of people. Um, and I don't know. I sort of went off on another tangent there, but I'm thinking. <laughs> it's all good. It's yeah. All good. Yeah. All right. That's, that's cool. Now, uh, I asked you earlier to come up with one song that's had, and you can only pick one, that, that's had the biggest influence or biggest impact on you. Um, so I want you to tell me what that song is and then we're going we're gonna to play it and have a bit of a listen and then we'll have a bit of a chat about it. So if you can tell me who that, who that song is. Well, yeah, it was tough, but I think I had to come back to Black Knight by Deep Purple. Do you remember the first time you heard this? Yeah. My dad had it on a 45. Yep. And uh, mum used to go to work on Monday nights uh, checking bingo numbers at the local RSL. And uh, my dad and I would just put records on, grab the squash rackets, air guitar, and (laughs) this is always the first song, you know. We try to go back and, and remember but yeah it was always this was the first song it was probably play we probably played it four times a night it was always the last song we put on um and i remember the video clip and everything about that song is just yeah man it's got everything it's got great yeah, drums mate. great yeah. vocals that rock killer that guitar rock shuffle man yeah yeah john lord with the distorted you know hammond just oh like just the drum groove too man like you just yeah. sit in that pocket for days 
Ian Pace is a beast, man. Yeah. I'm just, it's coming up to the part where there's that. And then he does this. First time I heard that, I went, what? <laughs> the fuck is that? <laughs> oh, it's here. Yeah. Tom's man, Tom's are the sound of yeah. the seventies, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another another shout out to Daz as far as that goes, man. Loves love the Toms. Yeah. Big big part of the sound, you know, the seventies. Uh, something that was kind of they used the Toms in the seventies as part of the grooves. Yeah. You know, in the eighties, yeah. they were just used for fills. And yeah, that's right. Kind of got away from that a little bit, but and they were ga- and they were gated and yeah, yeah, gotcha. yeah. But just added the bottom end. I, I probably didn't have the bottom end in the in the production back then, so they had these big floor toms and roto toms and man, <laughs> just so good. Alex Van Halen, you know, oh, yeah, just yeah, those seventies drummers, killer. Cool. All right. Um, what have you got on the horizon in the next three months? Well, up until a week ago, it was looking like we were back. I had uh, 10, eight or 10 gigs in August, and then I had 15 in September, and the majority were the, was living in the 70s, so full band shows all in Queensland. Right. right. Uh, but that looks like it's – look – the chances of it happening are very slim if I can't get exemptions. So it's looking like a couple more uh, months sitting on our asses mm. um, and replacing the band gigs with solo gigs so I can keep working yep. uh, and keep the musicians in show going, yeah, okay. um, yeah. trying to come I up just with- wanna, I want to I commend you on that, um, um, you know, through – through the whole um, lockdown thing, a lot of live stream stuff came about and, and most of it's shit, <laughs> I've got to say. But I think yours yours and, and Peter's, Pete Northcote's, they're the, they're, to me, they're the standouts. Um, I think um, I know you, you guys also, you know, you're doing it to, to make friends and to keep people together, but you're also, you're doing a lot for the people that are coming on the shows as well. Um, you're getting them to talk and, um, yeah, making them feel important when maybe they're, they're kind of a little bit down. I think it's great what you're doing. Keep it up. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's, um, you know, sometimes we've – it was supposed to be a one-hour show basically. Some have gone two and a half hours, almost three hours. Yeah. And yeah, then, yeah. you know, someone will get on. I usually get on at 7 o'clock, which is, you know, half an hour before we go live and someone will come on and we'll just – hang out, chat for 30 minutes or whatever. And then one of them we were on for an hour after we went off. We were just still talking and hadn't seen people in a long time and just catching up and finding out how all the kids are going and all that sort of stuff, you know. it's It's been – that's been really good from a personal perspective. And that was one of those things like you, man, I'd never done that before. I, you know, I'd 
been asked on a couple of times. There's a Gold Coast guitarist up here, Doug DeJong, and he started doing um, a similar thing. Yeah. Uh, and he was trying to do two a day. Like, God love him, you know. Yeah. He, yeah. Yeah. It was it was great, but hard well, to he, keep. He was on. He was on when I was on there. He, him, and yeah, Doug was there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gabor, Gabor, and um, and Matt, Matt. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. um, so I got inspired because he'd asked me on a couple of times because of my live stream shows that I was putting on, um, and I'd sort of drafted up an idea for a podcast before um, all of this and. But it kept getting put on the back burner. Uh, and I just thought, oh, this is great. This allows me to just plan something a couple of days out and go live. And it is what it is. Um, yeah, cool. So I kind of took what he did and adapted it to to what I wanted to do, which was kind of like a community help thing for everybody. So, and sort of cover anything in the industry as well as fun stuff, you know, like pedals and whatever, but just yeah. cover things that maybe you have to play for years to find out, yep. you know, without taking the fun out of discovering these things yourself. So, mm-hmm. you know, because you don't want to just walk up to someone and go, oh, this is how you do it. This is how you become successful. Don't make these yep. mistakes because most of the fun is in the is in the journey, you know, making those yeah, mistakes. But if you can lend a little bit of your the things that you've seen and the things that people don't really consider, like what we spoke about before in a venue, how to be an entertainer or, you know, mm. make sure you take lights and people can see you, mm. things like that. If you can just give people a few shortcuts for the annoying things, that was yep. my idea behind it because our industry can be very secretive and clicky sometimes that For sure. you may never find these things out unless you stumble on them yourself. And I, I've i just always been about sharing. If people want to know something, they can call up and and I'll tell them. I'll be like, yep, this is how you do it. And I think we spoke about it. Um, I had the guys from all the Aussies from LA on last week and mm-hmm. we spoke about this that um, there's no point if you're successful at what you do, you don't have to feel like if you give away what you're doing that someone's going to steal your gig. They're not. Yeah. Like if you're successful, a venue wants more of that. So if yeah. you know somebody else who's as good as you or in most cases with me, they're better than me, I want them at that venue. I want that venue to be successful. I want to make money uh, because – for the long term, you know, I don't want to go, oh, they make 20K on the bar when we're there. So I want to look like a genius and every other band only makes seven or 8K on the bar. <laughs> I don't want that. I want every week them to make 20K on the bar because when that happens, everybody wins. The prices go up. You can ask for more money. Um, that's something that's out there that it's a bit of a miss conception that there's no money out there for bands there is but you've got to work hard for it and you've got to build a following and you have to show you can't just say okay the band's a thousand dollars 
And after you've played one gig, go, well, now the band's $1,400. And then mm-hmm. the next time you play, you've got to play, okay, I'm willing, at, and this is just argument's sake, $1,000. I'll play for six months at $1,000, build a rapport yeah. with that with that venue and then go, oh, look, we've been making you money for this amount of time. Can we bump it up? And they'll go, oh, well, what do you want to bump it up to? And I go, well, can you do 15? Mm. And they'll most of the time, man, they'll go, no worries. Like you've got, yeah, the, cool. you've got the runs on the board, the money in the bank, and they will work with you because you have helped make them successful. They're getting bonuses. You know, if they are hitting their targets in pubs, they're getting bonuses and they want to keep that going. And they have the money to do it. You know, a lot of these places can do it. Some of them can't, and that's part of the understanding and the communication with the venues. But that whole thing of we've been getting the same money since the 80s, well, <laughs> maybe because you haven't gotten better from since the 80s. Yeah. I don't know. I don't yeah. know what it is. Um, maybe it just there's a reason why you're still making the same money as the 80s. And sometimes you've got to say no too. You know, if a venue can't pay, then what we were talking about before, adapt, go, okay, well, we can. I can offer you the trio for that money. I can't give you the four-piece. Um, but you have to be prepared to say no sometimes. Um, and you'll be surprised when you say no what happens, what comes back. Um, but it's scary, man. It's scary to say no to gigs. Um, but... You have to back your own ability sometimes. Yeah. Um, going back to, you know, you, you know, you've been hotel manager, restaurant manager, venue manager. I think it gives you a unique insight as to the inner workings of that kind of thing to be able to, I mean, you're just saying then, I, I had no idea that the pubs and stuff get bonuses if they, I mean, how would, how would you know that unless you're, you've been a part of that? You know, for you to have done that and have had that kind of uh, have that experience, I think that bodes well for you going into those negotiations and 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 knowing what what to do for those venues, which at the end of the day also helps you as well. Yeah, well, well, say for instance, there's a really easy equation. It's like whatever you whatever you charge, whatever your band fee is. The, the pub or club needs to make three times that fee on the bar to break even, right? Okay. So anything over that, then that's profit and that's what a venue wants to look at. They're like, okay, if I'm going to get, say, if I'm going to pay $3,500 for the radiators, say, um, then you've got to look at how many people you can put in the venue, what their average spend is going to be, will you get a flow on into the poker machines, will people pay for dinner? But really, you need 11K just to break even, you know, and, and 11K is a busy n- night any night of the week, you know. That's that's a good night. Um, and then there's another thing. So we haven't really talked about volume restrictions, um, which is a big thing in Queensland and was big when I was at Narrabeen. And the problem that people have and look most people understand it and there's silent stages now and in-ears and whatever else and column PAs and um but 
on a few instances where I've had difficulty dealing with a band, getting them to turn down, it's understanding that. So take the Sands for instance. You got a three and a half star resort style hotel above, right? Yep. Yep. So on a Friday or Saturday night, you got someone paying four, four or five hundred dollars for a room for a night. And if the band downstairs, all you're hearing is, you know, like you call up, you complain, right? So the manager comes down, tries to tell the band, look, you just got to like just filter the bass out a little bit, just turn down a little bit. Like I have the vocabulary where I can talk to a band on their level, which helped me a lot to get them to turn down. But most, you've got 18, 19-year-old kids out there that are pub managers now. Yep, um, yep. They don't have the vocabulary, so all they do is ask you to turn down. Um, but say, for instance, that person has a really shitty night and they call up and they go, right, I want a refund. You know, I didn't sleep all night, the band was too loud, I was upset, I got worked up. So then you offer a refund. So say you refund $400, they go away and they put on TripAdvisor what their experience was. So it's not mm-hmm. just the $400 that you lost from them, but it's yep. this thing that stays up there forever. Yep. It's a black mark against your venue for anybody who thinks they can come and have a good stay at the venue that you're running. And mm. trying to get people to understand things outside of their circle and the little bubble that they're in in order to make it better for them. Because if the band does the right thing and you have a good night, Dude, you got a gig for life, you know? Yeah. But if you stuff it up, there's just a black pen. And and not understanding the ramifications, as you said, having that background that I've had and being able to understand that talk on their level and understand what what it takes to have a successful night. It's um man, um, I'm so, you know, whether you want to call it blessed or lucky or whatever, but it's something that informs everything I do as a working musician. Um, Mm. And, yeah, I love doing that. I love that job too, man. I absolutely love it. That's sort of where another reason for that Musicians in came out of because when you're managing a whole lot of 18 and 19-year-olds, you you start to realise that, you can be a mentor to these kids and and make them understand what they're working towards and help them out a little bit from where you've come from. So, yeah, that's fed into the Musicians In show too is just that mentor um, aspect of my personality that I just I want to share and and help people where I can. Yeah, you're a good man, Rob. Um, <laughs> now, where can where can uh, where can people find you? Um, so Facebook. Yeah, Rob Rhodes Music, uh, that's the easiest place, or um, roadtripent.com. So, uh, but all the links are there on the Facebook. That's the easiest place to find me. Uh, I'll put all the links in the, sh- put all the, links in the show notes. Of this cheers. Too, so cheers, too. mate. And, man, you mm-hmm. can, when we all get back gigging, you could throw a stone somewhere and you'll likely find me, probably hit me with it, or <laughs> or see my yellow van on the, on the M1 heading between, you know, Ballina and Noosa, Harvey <laughs> Bay, whatever. But, yeah, man, I, I just 
so lucky to be able to do this. And yes, we do a lot of kilometers and and a lot of hours. But God damn, you know when when all things are firing, it's just an absolute treat to do what we do. And the people that I've met, lifelong friends, and the people that come to gigs and get so much joy, it's just yeah, it makes it it makes it so worthwhile. Which is why when this happened, I started the live stream shows uh, almost like the second week because there's a lot of people out there with lockdown and I just wanted to stay in touch with them. They come to our gigs um, week after week. Some of them travel three hours to come to our gigs and pay for accommodation and it was just a thank you, man, and and kept me sane at the same time. Uh, Yeah. Kept the chops up, you know, the vocals and the guitar <laughs> and, and the upskilling of learning all that tech, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. right. That's, oh, man, you talk about rabbit holes. That'd be good. That's, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. I'm such a tech nerd, man. And uh, That's cool, man. Love that stuff. Really good. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you one-on-one this time. Thanks, Stevie. Uh, away too, from mate. the musicians in. Um, I hope we can... Do something again soon, man. Absolutely, man. Anytime. Sweet as. All right, Rob. Rob Rhodes, thank you very much, man. See you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Yeah.